NATO defence ministers meet in Brussels, it's Europe in crisis, and the Hyde Park bomb trial has collapsed. We hear what that means for the families of those killed. I think it's difficult to describe in words the depth of anger and, and hurt that one feels, an element of frustration when you felt that somebody was going to be brought to justice, and the fact that opportunity has gone away. Hello, I'm Claire Sadler, standing in for Kate Jabot. Britain and NATO have joined America's warnings that plans must be made for a total withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end of the year. Today, Britain's Defence Secretary held bilateral talks with his Afghan counterpart at a NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels. Well, our reporter James Hurst asked Philip Hammond if any progress on the status of forces agreement had been made. Well, I think um, Afghan interlocutors generally are keen to reassure us that the BSA will be signed. The question is not whether it will be signed, the question is when it will be signed. And I think that's the mood among uh, NATO partners as well, that we're pretty confident it will be signed, but, you've but said, it may not be signed until after the election. But you've said it makes sense to plan for the possibility oh, yeah. that it won't be signed. And, and that's what we have to do. We have to focus on our uh, preferred option, our very strongly preferred option, which is uh, to deliver the commitments we made at Chicago, to stand side by side with the Afghans in a non-combat role after 2014, providing financial support uh, and a level of uh, military uh, support. Um, but we can only do that if we're invited and if we have a status of forces agreement. You did say yesterday Britain is still committed to the Carga Officer Academy. Yes. Can we be clear? If it were to come to no state of the forces agreement, would Carga still go ahead or could it not go ahead? No, it could not go ahead. Um, no status of forces agreement would mean no foreign forces. Um, all 28 members of NATO are absolutely clear about that. We cannot place our forces in the country without a status of forces agreement. They would be subject to Afghan law and we could not allow that to happen. What about the drawdown? Is that being impacted already because there's a possibility we might have to get out sooner than expected? No, our planning for drawdown was always to have as much of our kit as possible out by December 31st. Um, we allowed ourselves the possibility that it would run into um, 2015, getting the last bits of kit out, but the military are very confident that if we need to, we could bring everything out by the end of the year. But I emphasize again, our strong preference is to resolve this issue over the BSA and to deliver our commitments for an ongoing uh, involvement with Afghanistan after the end of this year. Of course, Operation Herrick, the long-running mission, still has 10 months to run. How much is there still to deliver from that? How challenging a 10 months ahead are there? Well, obviously, we've got the uh, challenge of the Afghan uh, elections, and th those elections are bound to introduce an element of instability. Uh, they're a source of uh, target, a target-rich uh, environment for the, for the insurgency uh, who have been 
targeting candidates, election officials, Afghan government officials. Um, so it is a tense period in Afghanistan, although, of course, the Afghan national security forces now have the lead on day-to-day -day security. Increasingly, the focus of our forces will be on cons consolidating and drawing down uh, into, back into Camp Bastion and then getting uh, the remainder of our kit and equipment out of the country in good order and keeping our people safe as we do that. The other big issue uh, being discussed here today, Ukraine. How concerned are you to see Russia carrying out military exercises effectively close to its border? Well, every country has the right to carry out military exercises within its own territory. But it course. sends a signal. Uh, it does indeed, and this is a quite provocative uh, action. And Obviously, uh, we would deprecate any uh, intervention of any kind uh, by the Russians in this uh, situation. Uh, I think the positive thing we can take away from uh, the events of the last week or so is that the Ukrainian armed forces, with whom NATO has very strong uh, connections, have behaved in a very proper and professional way, as befits the army uh, in a democratic country. Uh, and if that had not happened, if the armed forces had become involved in any way, we could have been looking at a very much worse situation today. Well, the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, talking to BFBS reporter James Hurst in Brussels there. Well, I'm joined now by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. We're going to talk more about Ukraine in a moment. But first, Professor Paul Rogers, what do you make of what Mr Hammond said there about Afghanistan and the possibility of a status of forces agreement? Well, until recently, it looked like there were going to be quite major problems. Uh, President Khadai does seem to be playing up, in a sense, and trying to uh, stretch it out. The best guess is that there will be some sort of agreement, but it's not absolutely, absolutely clear-cut. I think the main player here, of course, on the Western side is the United States. And I think the Obama administration expected to make more progress sooner. And this is why in the last 48 hours you've had these uh, coded messages coming out that, you know, the United States and presumably its coalition partners such as Britain are preparing for the possibility that an agreement is not reached, in which case everything will be coming out more or less by the end of the year. There's a parallel with what happened in Iraq in that the expectation was the U.S. would keep some combat troops in after the end of 2011. That was never possible to negotiate, so the Americans all left. And it's uh, the risk that they face is that this could happen in Afghanistan, but it looks like more like a game of poker than something really real at the moment. And Christopher Lee, Philip Hammond's diplomatic strategy hasn't really changed, has it? He's not playing hardball like the Americans? Well, he doesn't have to. I mean, the Americans want to leave 10,000 troops there. That was their idea. Uh, and all the logistics, that means, with 10,000 troops. But he's also got... There's another side of it. Uh, he knows very well, uh, or some of his people are sort of second-guessing, saying, well, actually, does it matter whether Karzai does sign this? Uh, if you go back to towards the end of last year, you have the whole of the Afghan equivalent of parliament all agreeing that it should be signed. They want the Americans to, say, to, to stay. And you also have really people who could be the new Karzais, people like Abdullah, Abdullah saying, you know, listen, as soon as I get the gig... <laughs> Give me the piece of paper, I'll sign it, it'll all be done. The other thing with the Americans, of course, is they're sitting, or, or Obama's sitting there facing a 2016 election, um, and so electioneering started quite soon. He's got a Senate 
and a House of Representatives who really don't want to be in Afghanistan in any shape or form. So that's why the Americans are publicly playing hardball. And do you think this meeting's achieved what it set out to? Uh, NATO meetings, I mean, it's, it's not a pejorative thing to so say. They never do. <laughs> I mean, the, the, if you think about the issues, I mean, what should be the major issue for the defence ministers here uh, at the, almost at the start of the year? It should be the summit that's going to take place in Wales mm. in, in the autumn to sort of set the tone of NATO, what does NATO do in the future? But nothing is as easy as that. And so you've got NATO in a crisis with, with, with the whole of uh, what's going on in, in the Ukraine, how they should react, uh, etc. You've got the difficulty over Afghanistan, and you've got a dozen other things which is on that agenda. They've only got through two-thirds of the agenda, which was, I thought was rather good, mm. and the rest of the stuff they put out to their officials. Well, as you say there, and as we heard in James's interview, uh, the crisis in Ukraine has been high on the agenda at, at NATO. The alliance has asked Russia and Ukraine to show restraint. Russia's defence ministry said fighter jets along the country's western borders have been put on combat alert. It's part of a military show of strength. 150,000 Russian troops are involved in exercises close to Ukraine. Paul Rogers, if I can bring you back in, what would Putin do with his air force, do you think? I think this is very much a show of strength, as you say. It's a political symbolism rather than hard military fact. Incidentally, I mean, when we had the Russian intervention in Georgia not so long ago, their air force was frankly almost unworkable. They had to pull in test pilots and uh, instructors to actually fly the planes. Those are the only ones who had enough flying hours. The situation's rather better from their perspective now. But I don't think for a moment that the Russians are looking to go to war, but they're making strong political points because I think they're very aggrieved at what has been happening in Ukraine and the potential loss of influence in what they regard as a significant country. They simply do not want to see Ukraine go helter-skelter really into Europe. And this, I think, is driving their view. And Putin can always play to the sense of Russian nationalism because the Crimea is historically so important to Russia. Yes, Christopher, Putin's right about Crimea, isn't he? Well, he's right what he says publicly. Um, you see, a bit, if, you, if you go to Crimea, um, they think themselves quite separate, and they don't like a lot of other people that live there. You talk to them, they speak Russian, for example. And, and Putin sees this in the same way that, for example, the Russians have always seen parts of, uh, of, of, of uh, Bosnia and the Balkans as a sort of a Slavonic uh, problem, although it's, it, it's not in that sense. So he is right in the sense that there are people in Russia's name saying, you know, we're not having what's going on in the rest of Ukraine, and therefore he is, he has got to give that sort of macho, macho message. But it's just a little bit cautious. He's got 150,000 guys on massing on the border. You don't ring up the general and say, listen, get 150,000 guys down this. We've known since. I think it was the third week in November that the Russians would be doing an exercise on that border. But he has got other interests. Sevastopol, for example, is the most important... It's like Portsmouth, our equivalent of Portsmouth for the Navy. So he's got major interest, and he doesn't want that part of the land to go the same way. The other thing he wants to do is a Eurasian-European uh, Union, something which would be sort of like the EU, and Ukraine's very much part of that. So he's got a lot to lose, including face. Mm. Paul Rogers, NATO has a history of, of saying a lot and doing nothing. Do you think it's the same this time as it was in Georgia? 
I think it would be very reluctant to intervene in any serious way. Uh, it just doesn't have the muscle, and, and the Americans who would have the muscle do not want to play ball with this. The problem here, though, is that you have quite a state of crisis uh, with potential for misjudgment. And in this phase, I use the acronym AIM, A-I-M, for accidents, incidents and mavericks. It's any one of those can actually turn what is quite a serious state of tension into something higher. And that is a thing you've got to watch for. And this is why you, you still need cool heads on either side, even though it's basically a political process behind it all. And if we're looking at diffusing this situation, Christopher, things are moving very fast. Restraint, the, possibly the furthest thing from Putin's mind, do you think? What, how do we move forward? or how, how does Ukraine move forward? Ukraine moves forward internally. And that is the safest way. I mean, aim. You know, uh, Rogers, absolutely, you know, Paul Rogers, absolutely sort of spot on here. This is when trouble starts, when there is what the Navy used to call an embuggerance factor. Something happens which he hadn't thought, how the heck could somebody have done that? That could have done it. And so it's an internal situation. What I'm rather interested in is what happens to Putin. He's got a Yunukovych in there, in, in, in Moscow at the moment. I mean, what's yes. he going to do with him? He, he, he's almost an embarrassment at the moment. He's not going to back him then, to put him back in... Well, nobody's going to take... He's not going <laughs> to deliver him to the Hague and say, right, we'll just see how you get on at the criminal court, is he? So he would rather not have him there. OK, well, Professor Paul Rogers, thank you for your time today. Still to come, a testing time for promotions. Why the three R's are more important than ever for serving soldiers. News, discussion and analysis. analysis. This is Zigweb on BFBS. Northern Ireland's First Minister has threatened to resign over the row about letters sent to nearly 200 IRA suspects saying they wouldn't be prosecuted. Earlier this week, the trial of John Downey, accused of bombing Hyde Park in 1982, collapsed after it was revealed he had received one of the letters. Chris Daly's brother, Lieutenant Anthony Daly, was killed in the attack. He told BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross how the collapse of the trial had affected him. I think it incredibly angry. I think when Danny was first arrested, the families of those involved had initial notion of complete surprise, completely out of the blue, going to one of you know pain of the reopening of the old wounds and to one of satisfaction. Actually, finally, the law never sleeps, and the fact that somebody could be held to account for the atrocity of Hyde Park, for the judgment that then to go against us, we don't really understand how. Downey is in possession of, a, of this letter, which now appears to be issued in error. And then on two further occasions, when the PSNI had an opportunity to correct that mistake, nothing was done and nobody was told. And hence, we come to the conclusion where we are today. How do the families feel about and do you Are you of the opinion that justice isn't being done here? Absolutely. I mean, there's not even... just doesn't even have the opportunity to be done. The fact that no trial is taking place... And I think that's what's really upsetting the families in the fact that we always thought the British criminal justice system is the best in the world and that if somebody causes an atrocity, they should be held to account. Had you any idea about this letter before the trial took place? No. We, we um, were told two weeks ago when there was um, the, ju the judge's judgment was going to be um, 
announced that was the first time we, we were aware of the background to this letter. And the fact that we appreciate that the peace process needed unique mechanisms to try and handle difficult situations. When the, uh, the, the concept of the administration scheme for OTRs was introduced, there were relevant safeguards put in place to ensure that if somebody was still wanted, then they would not receive such a letter. But that hasn't happened in this case. And do you understand exactly? Do you understand why politicians went through this process and issued letters to certain individuals? Yes, it, it, obviously, when trying to achieve peace, no one wants to stand in the, in the way of peace being achieved. And yes, is Northern Ireland in a better place now than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago? At the same time, though, it needs to be a compromise from both sides. And it seems to be that the IRA OTR seem to have got what they want, but there doesn't seem to be any quid pro quo on the, on the British side. And what do you want to see happen now? Essentially, a full and detailed explanation as to why this letter was issued in error. I think the pain that the families have gone through require an apology from those, particularly PSNI, for, who were responsible for the issuing or advising the issuing of this letter. And thirdly, a review of their processes to ensure that no other letters have been issued in error. And who do you blame? I mean, it's been called a catastrophic failure, a blunder. Who do you blame for this? We believe that the safeguards of this process were meant to be implemented by the PSNI, and these safeguards appear not to have taken place, so therefore we would hold the PSNI responsible. I think it's difficult to describe in words the depth of anger and, and hurt that one feels element of frustration when you felt that somebody was going to be brought to justice and the fact that opportunity has gone away. Chris Daly talking to our reporter Charlotte Cross. Northern Ireland journalist Alan Murray joins us from Belfast. Hello Alan. Hello. Was this simply a deal do you think between the British government and Sinn Féin? Well, that is the allegation that's being made by unionists, that this was a deal and that this was not a case of judicial process whereby someone simply inquired, am I wanted for any offence? Sinn Féin put the name forward to the police. The police did inquiries and then came back and said, no, you're not, there's your... And the Northern Ireland office then issued the letter. It seems inconceivable of the, we now understand, 225 persons who have received these letters that in only one case there has been a mistake. It would explain why other politicians claim they weren't told, wouldn't it? It is, and this is the, the big row that's raging now because Martin McGuinness this morning, the Deputy First Minister, he had his say. He was responding to the suggestion that Peter Robinson was going to collapse the Assembly, or the Executive rather, because he was going to resign, having been, as he put it, lied to by the British government. And Martin McGuinness... His spin on this is, well, these are only letters after due process was carried out and inquiries were made, and it was found that the people who got the letters were not wanted in any jurisdiction by any police force in the United Kingdom anyway. And he went on to say that a notorious IRA figure, a woman called Rita O'Hare, who is wanted still in connection with the attempted murder of a soldier in Belfast in 1971, was one of those who was refused one of these letters and or a royal pardon, of which there have been 13 between 2000 and 2002. So what he was saying was, not everybody got a letter. Christopher? Um, David Trimble, 
um, uh, who was, wasn't he, Alan? He was uh, first minister. He was first minister. He says quite definitely, I was not told about this. This was a private agreement between Sinn Féin and the British government. He's also buzzing around privately um, with with the further idea were similar letters sent to British soldiers, for example, those that took part in the Bloody Sunday uh, operation. Well, Sinn Féin objected, of course, to the bill, the Northern Ireland Defences Bill, which the Labour government tried to get through the Commons because that bill would have provided for that latitude in relation to soldiers and anyone else who served uh, for the Crown. And that was rejected because Sinn Féin were saying, no, we will not agree to soldiers not being brought to trial for for these offences, which maybe they are suspected of having carried out. So it does seem that this has been a private agreement with Sinn Féin, uh, regardless of what Mr McGuinness has said today. And the anger is palpable amongst victims and others in that this was done. And don't forget, we, we go back to the Labour government and we have the, the sexed-up dossier and the weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist, of course, in a, 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 a Iraq. And you then say, is this another one of these tawdry sort of arrangements that Tony Blair did in order, order, order to get things over the line when, in fact, judicially, they may have been not proper. Alan, does it really matter if the First Minister resigns over this? Well, it would in the sense that the two things could happen. He could resign and appoint someone, as he did during the time of his marital difficulties, to stand in for him, which he did, and that was Arlene Foster, until he, his matrimonial matters were put on a slightly more even keel, and then he came back. So he could do that again, although this time it may be more serious in that this is about a political matter as opposed to a matrimonial matter and a personal matter, and it may be that it would not be possible this time to do that and still have the hard face that you're wanting to put on. Deals are are what, what are done in order to end conflicts, aren't they? That's true, they are done, and in terms of the release of the 400-odd prisoners from the Mays prison, uh, those de- that deal was done in, in the sense that it was done through Parliament, and that's what people are saying, that's different, This was it was done through Parliament, and uh, it was done properly. This is being done in the back room, or has been done in the back room. Christopher? I just reminded though, uh, victims never ever get a good deal out of these things, do they? I mean, I think about the victims, for example, Omar bombings, uh, Warren Point. Um, they never do, and you can spread it right, th- right through history. Go to the Balkans, uh, 50,000 uh, women still waiting for some idea that the people that raped them will be prosecuted. doesn't happen because everybody stitches up an agreement and the agreement's signed under the word peace. Yes, uh, and that is the the tragedy about this. And we have people, uh, uh, one of the sons, a son of one of the people killed in the Inniskillen bombing in 1987, saying that means that the person who put the bomb there, killing 11 people, may never be brought to justice. That person, we believe, is in the United States of America, like Rita O'Hare. And we wonder then, did they get a, a letter? Or have they not got a letter? Are they one of the few that Martin McGuinness is referring to who didn't get letters? Okay, Alan Murray, thank you ever so much for joining us. This is SitRep on BFBS. 
Now, from April the 1st, any soldier selected for promotion, whatever their rank, will have to prove their reading, writing and math skills. The rush is on to beat the deadline, even military education centres in Afghanistan. Well, BFBS reporter Rob Olver joins us now from Camp Bastion. Rob, what do you know about these changes? Hi, Claire. Well, uh, there was a time when you could uh, move up the ranks without the three R's. Not anymore, though. Soon, no maths and English will spell no promotion. So here at Camp Bastion, as the April deadline looms, there's been a surge in demand for literacy and numeracy courses. Why the rush? Well, in combat zones like Afghanistan, it takes a lot longer for the results to come back, uh, up to six weeks. The problem is, if you have to resit by the time you pass, there's a risk it may be too late for some promotion boards. I should point out that since October, only one person at Camp Bastion has failed the literacy and numeracy, numeracy tests, and more than 100 have passed. And does it really apply to all ranks? That's right. Nobody escapes. So uh, if you're a corporal hoping to be a sergeant or even a W02 trying to become a W01, you'll have to prove your numeracy and lit- literacy skills. As you can imagine, that's been quite a challenge for instructors at Camp Bastion who could be teaching a lance corporal and a sergeant major at the same time. The instructors say it's meant playing to the strengths and weaknesses of everyone in class. So, so why exactly is the MOD doing this? I think it reflects uh, thinking that uh, as armies shrink, soldiers will have to operate more independently as the equipment becomes increasingly sophisticated. They'll have to be ever more capable, and that means academically too. Certainly that was a key message from the last NATO-sponsored air and space power think tank held in Germany. It's also what Chris Donnelly, a special advisor to four NATO secretary-generals, told a conference in Holland last year. Now there's even talk, and I stress it's only talk at the moment, of majors hoping to become lieutenant colonels, having to have master's degrees. We shall see. Yes, so Christopher Lee, let me bring you in on that point. If it is the way forward, do you think we could see a time when all senior officers will need degrees? No, I don't. I mean, need degrees. It might, somebody might say it's a good idea to have it. Um, but uh, a lot of people don't have degrees, and especially if you take the Army. The Army, used to, uh, Army course at Sandhurst used to be a couple of years. Now it's quite a short course, and that was because then, when it was a couple of years, it was considered the Army's, if you like, the, uh, the, the, Army's, the Army's university. What I don't quite understand is uh, what level of skills are they going to do? Now, I remember Chris Donnelly talking about this, uh, as Rob uh, mentioned him. And he'd worked out that the average age, the reading age, for example, of a British soldier, average reading age of a British soldier was under 10. That's quite shocking, Probably quite as low as 7. Now, what do you do? You spend a lot of time bringing up to people so they can do war and peace uh, or or whatever. Um, That's the interesting thing, at what level they want to do it. But as far as saying, well, you know, every every half colonel ought to be uh, an MA. An MA in what? How do you get an MA? Takes you, say, two years, or you can go and do do one of these sort of jam pot MPhils somewhere, which is just two two terms in an essay. Uh, What does that actually do for you? Nothing at all. What about the Americans? Is this is this something they do? No, they don't. I mean, what it is, uh, sometimes you go through a junior staff course or, or, or whatever like that, and they consider that as the standard because you have to write essays, etc. That's the sort of standard of it. Or you might go and do an in 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 a sort of an in-service degree in something. Um, for example, last ver- the last verse, Sea Lord had a degree in physics, which he did while he was in the Navy, not when he joined the Navy. And so, I mean, I think we can get out of hand on this, uh, to have everybody do a master's degree. 
um, a master's in what and why? And does it make you a better soldier? If it does, you better nip up to the chiefs of staff corridor and ask how many of the vice chiefs and the chiefs of the defence staff and the chief of the general staff have these sort of degrees. Um, it might be embarrassing, a bit embarrassing and give the army something else to do in Camp Bastion to teach them as well. OK, Rob Olver, thanks ever so much for joining us. Let's move on to any other business now. And uh, Jib, the Jib. first Gibraltar, thing. Gibraltar, yes. The um, House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, MPs who look at foreign affairs, at British foreign affairs, British foreign policy, uh, are nipping down to Gibraltar next week, I think next Tuesday, Wednesday, and they're going to be taking evidence for an inquiry they're doing on, and part of it will be the relationship between, the recent fracas between Spain and, uh, and, and Gibraltar and therefore the United Kingdom. Very important. It's going to be a very, very big story to watch. Taliban? Taliban. Uh, Pakistan's getting really fed up with uh, Taliban, especially up in North Waziristan. They are about to, my guess, maybe as early as this weekend, they're about to launch a big army operation against Taliban. Last week, Taliban executed 23 Pakistani soldiers. Very important as far as Afghanistan is concerned. Merkel? Merkel. Angelica Merkel, uh, the the German Chancellor, was addressing the two houses of parliament in Westminster uh, this morning. And she pointed out, you know, two world wars involved Germany, involved Britain. That's what you want the EU for. Please stay in the EU. Okay, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and all our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to the programme on our website. That's bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. We are back at the same time next week. But now, for now, from me, Claire Sadler, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>